All right. Uh, this week we're in Hosea chapter 13, and we'll start in verse 14. Uh, but before I get there, I want to go back to the beginning of the book a little bit. Uh, we're coming to the end of the book, and as a matter of fact, we, we may actually finish tonight, depending on how fast I can get through all of this. But the 14th verse of Hosea chapter 13 is, is really the most important verse in the whole book. It's the culmination of the thing. It's, it's the climax of everything that happens in this book. But if you remember what we had when we first started this book, we had the prophet Hosea commanded by God to take a wife of whoredoms. And that was to be a picture or a figure of the pain that God endured in dealing with a faithless nation that had spiritually committed adultery against him. And so he takes this wife named Gomer. There are three children born. And like we said all the way back then, it's not even certain that all three children were even Hosea's because of the way this woman was behaving. The third one was named Loami, which means not my people. So I think there's probably a pretty good chance that it wasn't actually Hosea's child. And uh, you can see how much pain that must have caused for Hosea. Um, most of us wouldn't have put up with that, would we? Uh, if we had had a spouse that behaved that way continually on an ongoing way. And it appears uh, from some things it says there in chapter 2 that she probably wasn't that she, that she probably was uh, more or less a prostitute, actually. Uh, she was following after men who could pay her or give her uh, their wealth anyway. And uh, multiple men like that. That's what she's done all her life. And then we come to chapter 3, and we have this commandment from God where it said, Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet love a woman, beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So he commands this man, Hosea, to love this woman in spite of everything she's done. And that is to be compared to the love that the Lord had for the children of Israel because God simply would not let this nation go. Now, as we've seen already, and we'll see more of tonight, they have to endure a punishment, a chastening for a season. But the love wouldn't end. And that was the thing that was supposed to be demonstrated in this marriage. He doesn't tell Hosea to go visit with her and see if they fall in love or see if they can rekindle the spark or anything like that. He says, go love. It's a thing that is to be take, undertaken as a conscious decision, a conscious action. It's not something that just happens. I think that's an important facet of love that we've lost in our modern world is it's not something you merely fall into. It's something you choose. And if you're depending on something you fell into to uh, keep love alive, then you're going to be disappointed because if you just fell into it, as soon as somebody turns the bucket over, you're going to fall back out. And that's about what happens with a lot of people today, isn't it? But <clears throat> he says, you choose this love. And so Hosea does this. He follows the commandment of God. And I think, it's worth pointing out here that this is a very godly and submissive man to be obedient to this commandment. I don't know. I don't know too many people uh, who ever had a more, a more difficult commandment from God than Hosea did. Uh, you know, maybe Abraham, when he, he was sent out to sacrifice Isaac, and there, there could be a few in the scripture you might point out, but this was a pretty tough assignment that this man Hosea pulled. And uh, so he's told to do this. Now, 
there is an interesting circumstance that we mentioned at the time we looked at chapter 3 that we need to look at here again, and it's this. The, the relationship was complicated by the fact that Hosea couldn't simply go and take her home because she had managed to get herself put into slavery somehow or other. And the exact details of that are not clear. Uh, it's not told exactly what happened. It is clear in verse 2 of chapter 3 that he had to buy her back. That is, she was no longer a free woman who could simply choose to go home with Hosea. She was sold. And like I said, we don't know exactly how that happened. It's, it's not too hard to speculate that this woman uh, who had depended on her looks for her livelihood for a lengthy period of time got older and the uh, sort of men that she had been trafficking with decided they'd look for uh, somebody younger than her and that she wasn't the one they wanted anymore. She probably, because of the way she had lived her life, had never developed any other kind of skills that would make her attractive to anybody. And so probably unable to support herself. And frankly, in that world, in that day, there weren't a lot of ways that a woman could support herself. And I know that makes a lot of people mad to say that, but it's just a fact of history that it was very difficult for a woman to be able to support herself financially uh, in those days. And so somehow or other, she gets herself maybe in debt. It's clear from chapter two that she had a taste for fine things and probably uh, got herself in some financial difficulties. And uh, she ends up as a slave, apparently. Hosea, even though he is legally her husband, can't just go take her home. Somebody else has an ownership stake in her. And that's very important for the lesson tonight. And so what Hosea has to do is not only swallow his pride and go take her back, which would be hard enough, wouldn't it? I mean, I think most of us would have trouble with that after a woman had acted the way she had. He actually has to pay a price for her. And so he goes to the slave market or wherever it was, and he pays a price. He pays in uh, chapter 3, verse 2, it says, So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a half homer of barley. And uh, that's not a lot. He didn't pay a high price. Under the law, the price of a dead slave was 30 pieces of silver. Uh, that is that if, for example, if your ox wore somebody else's slave, that was the restitution you had to pay because that was considered to be what a dead slave was worth. Well, she's worth half that price. She's 15 pieces of silver and a homer of barley and a half homer of barley. And barley, by the way, was the cheap grain. Uh, that was usually used, usually used for feed, for livestock. Uh, people would eat it in hard times, but if uh, people would prefer wheat if they could get that, and so they would use barley for the livestock generally if they could. That's what he pays for this one. That's a good question. Uh, a homer is a unit of measurement. Now, let me say this. This is worth pointing, pointing out about units of measures in the Bible. You find all sorts of, uh, you, you have homers and ephahs and shekels for weight and talents for weight and things like this. And to be perfectly honest with you, you can you can look at, some of you probably can look at, at the margin in your Bible and it'll probably give you something that it's, mine says it's homers about 86 gallons. I don't have a lot of confidence in a lot of the things that people say about these ancient units of measure. 
because you find a wide variety of readings about it. And you're uh, thinking dry measure in gallons? Yeah, it would have been a volume. It would have been a volume measure. So uh, uh, you somebody may have it in bushel or something like that. But uh, like I said, I don't necessarily. I, I've seen I've seen estimates of what a talent was that range anywhere from about fifty pounds to one hundred and fifty pounds, which is pretty wide range, right? It's not not particularly helpful. And uh, you know, for like for example, a cubit. That's one of the measurements that's used a lot in the Bible for length. And usually it's pegged at about 18 inches, um, but it appears that a cubit, the way it was actually measured off was from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger, which obviously varies from person to person, right? And so uh, that's not necessarily really sure. And, and there's become a problem with two people are actually doing the building of something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. You, you would uh, you would have to have the same person doing all the measuring, uh, or else if you have one person building one side of the building, one person building the other, it'd be pretty hard to get it squared up. <laughs> but uh, you know they didn't necessarily have uh, rulers back then, and honestly, it's pretty incredible some of the things that were built in ancient times with the primitive equipment they had. Um, it seems like uh, well, the Egyptians, of course, built these massive pyramids without any modern surveying equipment that we know of. Yeah. And yeah, one of the most remarkable things that happened in the Bible times is you remember Hezekiah had a tunnel built mm -hmm. uh, for, for water <laughs> to be brought into the city during time of siege. And apparently from archaeological evidence, they, they dug that tunnel from both ends mm -hmm. to try to meet in the middle and met within just a few inches, mm -hmm. which is incredible. Mm -hmm considering the lack of surveying equipment that they had at that time, but they figured it out somehow, right? They were they were smarter than we give them credit for sometimes. Anyway, as far as a homer, my Bible says 86, so that'd be 86 plus 43, 129 gallons. Take that for a grain of salt, <laughs> right? But it's uh, an homer of salt, right? <laughs> not an homer. Uh, so anyway, anyway, it's not... Uh, it's not a huge price to pay, is what I'm saying, for, for a human being, right? Uh, it's almost insulting to pay that price. Um, I've speculated here before that he probably didn't have to pay much more than that because probably nobody else was bidding for her. Uh, and that's a wonderful picture of the love of God, isn't it? Uh, when you think, you know, the Lord, as we'll see here in a minute, the Lord paid, paid an incredible price for us. But I don't know anybody else that was bidding for us. Well, the price that has to be paid for lost humanity is a very different kind of price than this. We've been going through this whole book, and we've seen how Israel is similar to Gomer and how she has betrayed her husband. The Lord is the husband of Israel. And she has followed after idol gods worship those images we saw here earlier in this chapter about how they kissed the calves rather than obeying him. And they too have a ransom price to pay. That's what this 14th verse says. After all this discussion about the sinfulness of Ephraim of Israel, and remember there we left off in verse 13, the sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him 
He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. And we talked about how last time that travail is, is often used in the Bible as an image of a period of captivity or a period of suffering that has to be endured before God sends deliverance. Uh, we saw that with the southern kingdom, that their, their time in Babylon was, a, was pictured as the travail of a woman. And uh, they saw there that he's a, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, is an unwise son. For he should not stay long in the place of breaking forth the children. He shouldn't, but he is. And that northern kingdom went into captivity in 722 B.C. And has never really been restored. And so there's this far off hope. When God gives hope for this nation, it's very much a far, far off hope. But look what he says in verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the great. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. And so we see something here that goes far beyond the problem of just returning the people to the land. Yeah, that's exactly what that is. That's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Because the situation we've got here with this nation is that if God didn't intervene to deal with the basic problem, which is always sin. If God didn't deal with that, he could send this nation into captivity and they'd repent and he could bring them back and then they'd sin again. This is a cycle that follows all the way through the Bible. If you've ever read the book of Judges, that's precisely what happens in that book. They start to sin. God sends some enemy to oppress them. And once the enemy comes, they start to cry and repent. And God sends a deliverer, and they're faithful as long as that judge lives. When that judge dies, they go back to the same thing, only a little worse than it was before. And they take that downward spiral. Because merely delivering them doesn't fix the real problem. The real problem with Israel, and not just with Israel, but with the whole human race, we're looking here specifically at Israel, but the real problem is that we're sold under sin. We're bond servants to sin. And that's why that's why that detail in the earlier part of the book about how Hosea and Gomer uh, and Gomer not uh, not merely being a, an unfaithful wife who uh, needs to be restored in love, but actually being a slave that needs to be redeemed. That's why that's so important, because we are all sinners and there's a bounty on our heads We're we are uh, servants of sin and there and sin is owed a price. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And that's the ultimate penalty, isn't it? God can do this. He can play this game with Israel forever, putting them in captivity and they'll repent and they'll come back. But that doesn't really fix the nation in the end, does it? Because they always do the same thing. And we're the same way as individuals, are we? God could send chastening in our lives and get our attention a little bit and we start to repent. You see this happen sometimes. You know, there are there are a lot of people, I think, who make professions of faith who never really get born again because all that really happened was they were in trouble and they were looking for an out. And they never really trusted Christ. They were just looking for a way out of their trouble. And sometimes God grants them that. But if it's not a genuine repentance and a genuine faith that saves, then uh, when their deliverance has uh, been accomplished, it doesn't take long until they fall back in the same thing. That's one of the tests, I think, of whether somebody got a real salvation or not. 
is whether or not they keep falling back into the same patterns of behavior they had when they were lost. And uh, that's what this nation will do unless they have this thing that fundamentally changes them. This nation is sold under sin. And that's an important point to understand. They're going to be overrun by Assyria, and Assyria will have possession of them. But Assyria is not their real master. The real master is Satan. That's the problem. The real master is sin. And the real problem is, whether they stay in the land or whether they go into captivity, eventually all of them are going to die. And that's a far bigger problem than any captivity that Israel ever went into. The same problem that we have today in our lives. We live in a country that is a free country, and we take great pride in that, and we're very grateful to have a, a nation we live in where we have freedom, and we're not subject to any other nation. But all of us are going to die because we're all servants to sin. We're not as free as we think we are, right? And uh, this is this is the thing that God has to deal with. He says the, the, the only way to deal with this is to ransom them from the power of the grave and to redeem them from death. Now, how in the world can you accomplish a ransom from death or from the grave or a redemption from death? There's, there's a lot of background, actually, in the Old Testament about the idea of redemption. God wrote a lot of that into the law. <clears throat> and uh, we've looked at it before, so I'm not going to take the time to go back and look at it in detail right now. But uh, generally speaking, it was possible in Israel for a person to get so much in debt that they had to sell themselves into servitude. And uh, so if that was done, if you were in servitude, there was a commandment from God that that servitude could be ended if you had someone who was willing to pay the debt that you had that, that you had uh, incurred and that had put you in that kind of servitude. And it was a commandment, by the way, it went for anybody in the land, whether they were Jews or not, even if they were strangers in the land, God gave that commandment that you, if you lived in the promised land, even as a foreigner, you had to honor the uh, responsibility of ransom payment. That is, that if someone sold themselves to you for a certain debt, there would have been a certain monetary amount set, and you were not free to hold them if somebody paid the redemption price. You couldn't just decline that. You were required to honor the ransom price. Now, they would have had, it, it, it was supposed to be a near kinsman, someone who was related to you, and they had to have certainly the means to pay it. If they couldn't come up with the money, they couldn't pay it. They had to be willing to do it. They weren't required to. They had to do it of their own will. And so that was how it worked with the servitude back then. You had to pay the price that was owed. The problem with ransoming, ransoming somebody from death is that the price that is paid and the price that is owed is death. So that's why none of us could ever serve as the ransom for one another. I can't pay your price for sin because your price is death, but I owe the same price. And how many times can I die? I can only pay the price once. I can only pay the price for myself. In order for that price to be paid, you'd have to have somebody who was without sin, who didn't deserve the price of death. And that's where the beauty of God's plan of salvation comes into the thing. Because what God did 
was the thing that none of us could have ever invented or imagined. And I think, by the way, that's one of the proofs of the scripture because what God did is something we would have never come up with. Now, to be fair, there have been other religions, and, and people always point this out in some of the old mythologies, there have been stories where a God suffered a death or something like that. But it wasn't like this. It wasn't calculated as a redemption price for sin. That's the thing that makes this distinctive. Because who else can do this? There's not a man on the earth. Listen, if you're in the Old Testament days, if you're in Hosea's day, how in the world, I don't know if Hosea really understood what he was even saying. Because how can anybody pay the ransom price for death for somebody else? If you were in the Old Testament days and you couldn't see clearly the Messiah was going to come and die for the sins of the world, the human race is really in effect, isn't it? Everybody's a sinner. And there's no escape. There's, there's no way out. If you sin, the price is you must die and go to hell. And there's no way you can fix that. We have no, uh, we have not one among us, no kinsman redeemer, no one of the human race who can suffer that price. And God is sinless, but God can't die. So how do you fix the problem? Well, God had the answer to the problem all along, and that was to send his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to become one of us. We're getting close now to the Christmas season, and we find one of the names that was given to Jesus was Emmanuel. That means God with us. And when the Bible says God with us, it means God with us in the sense of God being one of us. And that's one of the most incredible, that maybe, maybe the most incredible thing that we could ever conceive is that God would, would or could condescend to take on human flesh and be among us, to be our kinsman redeemer and to be able to pay this price. If Listen, this, there's so much important doctrine bound up in this. If the virgin birth isn't true, then Jesus Christ was not sinless because he would have inherited that sin nature. If the virgin birth is not true, then Jesus Christ wouldn't be God. And if he's not God, he can't pay the price. If the virgin birth is not true, then he's not a man. And if he's not a man, he can't pay the price because he's not, he wouldn't be a kinsman redeemer and he, and he couldn't die. He couldn't bear that price. That kinsman redeemer, he had to be a near kinsman. He had to have the capacity to bear the price or pay the price. He's the only one in the world that could. That's why the scripture said there's none on the name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no substitute for Jesus Christ. He's the unique, indispensable man in the history of the world. I've told you this before. I think that with all the other characters in the Bible, if they had refused to go, God could have found somebody else. God could have chosen another Paul. He could have chosen another David. He could have chosen another Moses. But if Jesus hadn't gone, there was no substitute. There weren't any other options. He's the only one who could do this work. He's the only one who could pay the price. And the third thing the Redeemer had to be was he had to be willing. And thank God Jesus Christ was willing to pay the ransom price. Nobody made him do it. You have people sometimes say that it was a wicked thing for the Father to make the son go to the cross and die. He didn't make him go. He went willingly because he loved us. And that's what this whole thing is picturing here. This idea of a ransom. He says, I'm not just going to ransom them from Assyria. 
I'm going to ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. This is looking far out into the future when Jesus is going to come and pay the price. Listen, he could have sent a warrior to go defeat Assyria and redeem them from Assyria. But the only one who could redeem them from death is Jesus Christ. So we're looking now way out into the future toward the second coming of Christ when he'll actually appear to his people. We saw there uh, back in uh, chapter 2 about how, verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And there's passages uh, in the scripture we're going to look at, one of them later, Lord willing, if we ever get to it in Zechariah, about what's going to happen when he actually comes again. Israel is in a unique position. It's one of the blessings they have as the Jews is that when Jesus comes again, they apparently will still have the opportunity to repent even after they've seen him. And I don't think the Gentiles will. I think the Gentiles, as far as I can tell, will have their fate set when he comes on that day. But he's going to come and plead with Israel. And they'll have the opportunity to receive him or reject him. And the terrifying thing is that most of them are going to reject him. We have that in Zechariah. Two-thirds of the people will reject him even then. And one-third will accept him. But uh, it's an incredible thing that he has loved them so much in spite of all they have done, that he still intends to pay this ransom price for them. It's an incredible thing for us that after all we've done, and I don't have to tell you about your own life, every one of us could look and examine the things in our heart and in our past that we've done. And I'm sure that all of us have things that we don't want to tell anybody else at this table that we've done in our lives. But, He knows all of that. And he chooses to come and pay the ransom anyway because he loves us. You know why he loves us so much? This is the most amazing thing in the world. He loves us that much because he chose to. He didn't fall in love. He didn't fall in love with us. He He didn't see anything in us that was so wonderful and marvelous that he said, I've just got to have them because they're such great people. He did it according to the good pleasure of his own will. I love that phrase. It was according to the good pleasure of his own will. He chose to love us. Thank God we're coming up on Thanksgiving this week of all the things in the world that you could thank God for. That's got to be at the very top of the list, doesn't it? That Jesus Christ would love us enough to give himself as a ransom price for our sins. He goes on here in this verse. He says, O death, I will be thy plagues, O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from thine eyes. And if that has a familiar ring to it, it's because it is connected with a passage in the New Testament that all of us know, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, verse 54 says, So when this corruptible shall I put on incorruption, and this mortal shall I put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. That's Isaiah 25, 8. Uh, reference there. But the next verse, he says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's similar, but not the same. And the difference is the wonderful thing here, because what you see in the distinction between these two passages is the change that is wrought between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have a prophecy. 
O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Future. It's coming. It's interesting, isn't it? He used that word plagues because throughout this book, we've been talking about the history of Israel and how it connects to the prophecy he's giving. And if you remember, the way he released them from Egypt in the first place was with a series of plagues. The last plague that he sent was death. And he sent that as a plague upon Egypt. And of course, Israel had to have uh, Passover to be liberated from that. But what an incredible thing this is. He says he used death as a plague, but now he's going to be the plague of death itself. <laughs> he, uh, he used the plague of death to free the people from Pharaoh. He's going to use his own son to free the people from death. And that's an incredible thing, isn't it? That uh, his son would play the part of that Passover land and free the people from death. Well, that's future tense. He says, death I will be thy plagues, grave I will be thy destruction. This is written before the cross, of course. First Corinthians 15 is written after the cross. The thing is done. And now instead of threatening or promising death, he is a victorious champion taunting death. It's finished. He says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? He has become the plague of death, of the grave and the destruction of death. And he announces his victory now. And thank God for that. For us today as believers, death has no more sting and it has no more victory. Do you know that every time we have one of our brothers or sisters pass from this world, it grieves us? Doesn't grieve them. <laughs> For them, it's the most joyful thing in the world. And thank God all of us will find that out one day if we, if we uh, don't live to the time of the rapture. We'll find this thing that everybody feared so much all along has no sting or victory left in it. And that's because of the one who has gone before us to pay the price. Well, there is no greater than love than that in all the world, is there? That's why sometimes we talk about this book of Hosea as the great love story of the Old Testament. Um, even more so, I think, than the Song of Solomon, which, you know, is often used as a picture of the love between Christ and the church. But this is far beyond that, because here you see the beloved paying that ransom price for the unfaithful one who doesn't deserve anything of the sort. And that's what Israel receives. But thank God it's not limited to Israel. This is a prophecy that is made for anyone of all nations who will come into it. We are in the church grafted on to the olive tree. We Gentiles are right. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. But uh, thank God we've been given a privilege in that, too. Well, in verse 15, he goes back to talking about what's wrong with Ephraim. He says, though he be fruitful among his brethren, Ephraim was probably the most prosperous of the northern tribes. An east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness and his spring shall become dry and his fountain shall be dried up and he shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. Now, we've talked about this some before the Assyrians even though they invade from the north, actually the nation is to the east of Israel. The reason they didn't come straight from the east is because there's a desert in the way. But they're pictured here as an east wind. And that there was a, uh, a, a terrible east wind that sometimes would come off that Arabian desert and dry up the land. And he says that's what this uh, Syrian army is like. They're like this east wind that's going to blow in and dry up the land. It says Samaria shall become desolate. 
that's Samaria was um, for the most most of the time the capital there of the northern kingdom. For she hath rebelled against her God, they shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. And of course, that's a picture of how horrific the Assyrian army was. They were they were notorious for how brutal and violent they were. And uh, we talk sometimes about how some of those ancient nations were brutal, and sometimes people talk about how rough the Romans were. The Romans really couldn't hold a candle to the Assyrians as far as sheer needless barbarity. <laughs> barbarities, right. Um, they wanted to strike fear in people. They inspired a lot of hatred. Uh, we'll talk about that more when we get to the book of Jonah, because we find that Jonah was sent down there to preach to the Assyrians and was upset when they repented. And that seems like such a strange thing, but it's easier to understand when you realize that Jonah had probably seen maybe some of the beginnings of what the Assyrian army could do. And they, they literally would uh, uh, rip up women who were with child and, and uh, kill babies. I mean, just pick up babies and smash their heads in and things like that because they were so incredibly brutal. That's what's going to come upon this nation. But he says there in verse 14, and I mentioned, or chapter 14, verse 1, and I've looked at this uh, verse a couple of times already. Back in chapter 12, we had all these landmarks that he was reminding them of, about Gilgal and Gilead and Bethel, places that were, <clears throat> uh, were important places in the history of the nation as far as their return from being off in the wilderness or captivity or, or whatever. And we find out that all those places are corrupted. And so where do they return to if Gilgal is a mess and Gilead's a mess and Bethel's a mess? Well, where they return to is not a place. It's to God. He says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Now, let me try to carry that in just a little deeper. When Jacob had to return to the land, he used Mount Gilead as his landmark because you can see it from a long way off. And ultimately he was going to Bethel. That was where he had set up a pillar. And so he returned to there because those were places he set up when he left. And even though he wasn't exactly the most honest man in the world, it wasn't, he wasn't fallen exactly because of his iniquity, at least not entirely by his, he had help and was assisted in some of the things he did wrong. But what God says to Israel here is, you can't return to a place because you didn't leave voluntarily. Jacob left voluntarily. And so he had a place marked to go back to. And he says to Israel, your problem is not that you left a place. Your problem is that you left me. You've gone off into sin. And the truth is, their problem wasn't going to be that they were in a strange land. The problem was that they weren't in right relationship with God. And that's kind of a powerful lesson for the church today, too, isn't it? We complain sometimes about how, as a church, we feel a little dislocated in the modern world with everything that's going on. But if we've got a problem, it's not that we're not in the right place. It's that we're not in the right relationship with God. As long as we're right with him, it doesn't really matter what's going on in the world around us, does it? As long as we keep that relationship right. And so that's what he says to them. Their problem is not going to be returning to this land. Your problem is going to be returning to me. Because if they ever turn to him, then they'll get right. And as a matter of fact, that's true right here in this age of grace. There's coming a time 
when God will bring the nation fully back into the land. But even right now at this moment, if any of the Jews will turn to God by faith in Jesus Christ, he won't necessarily return them to the land, but he'll bring them back into right relationship with him. And that's the really needful thing anyway. So that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to return to God. Now, how will that happen? Verse 2 says, take with you words. Now think about that. They're about to be carried off into captivity. What would you say, take? You say, take some food for the journey. Take some extra clothes. Take some money. He says, what you need are words. <laughs> what good is that? You can't eat words, can you? He says you need words because what you need to do is come to God and tell him, make your confession to him. Turn to the Lord, say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. That's what he says. You need to make a confession and trust him. And don't plead your case. <laughs> you know, they don't say, say, not say to the Lord, well, we've, you know, we've tried to make a sacrifice here and there. And we tried to honor him. No, he says, just admit to him that you're in iniquity and ask him for grace. And you know, you can, you can study this Bible from cover to cover and you'll never find anybody who came to God humbly with contrition in their heart asking for grace who got turned away. It never happened because that's the thing that touches the heart of God, the broken heart and the contrite spirit. That's what he's always been looking for. So that's what he, now notice this end of this verse. I've mentioned before how Hosea always had a very clever way of putting a phrase together. Notice how what he puts at the end of this verse. So will we render the calves of our lips. Now, remember back there in chapter 13, verse 2, they've been kissing the calves. And uh, to render the calves of our lips uh, basically means to kill them or maybe even sacrifice them. <laughs> and that's what God's saying to them is, uh, think about how this is. Think about this now. That it's not so much that they need to go sacrifice a live bull or a live goat. He said you need to go tear up that false god. That's that's a sacrifice you need to make right now, because Christ is the one who's going to make the real sacrifice for them anyway. But he says you need to get rid of that calf of your lips, render that thing, get rid of it, and then you can get back in right relationship. In verse three, what else they're supposed to say? Asher will not save us. Now, Asher here is a name that's sometimes used for Assyria, but Asher actually is the proper name of the God of the Assyrians. That's where they took their name from. And so that's what they're supposed to admit is that Asher's not going to save them. Now, part of the reason they got themselves in such a mess here to start with is because they had been paying the Assyrians tribute money to protect them from other people. And they quit paying the tribute money. <laughs> And that's why the Assyrians are cracking down on them now. That's why the judgment is coming. And it's important for them to realize what a foolish thing it was to ever depend on Assyria for your protection anyway, or to think that, well, let me take it a step deeper. Most people in the Middle East in that time thought of warfare in terms of whose God was more powerful. And by paying tribute to the Assyrians, they were essentially making a confession that they thought Asher was more powerful than Jehovah. And so what he's saying is, you've got to come to me and admit, Asher won't save you, but your only salvation is in me. He says this next, we will not ride upon horses. <laughs> now, I've mentioned this a time or two before, but let me say it again. 
this is something that would have had meaning to somebody who had studied the law that it doesn't have to us today. Because under the law, when God gave them a commandment concerning kings in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there were certain things that the king was not supposed to do. And oddly enough, the first thing on the list, Deuteronomy 17, 16, was, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Now, that is so important that he puts it before telling them not to multiply wives to themselves or to greatly multiply silver and gold. God made a big deal about the horses. Now, let me say, first of all, for anybody that may, be, uh, uh, may enjoy riding horses, that it's not a sin for you to ride horses now. There is a point behind this commandment, and that was that the king of Israel was not supposed to become dependent on horses to fight his battles. And already, even in the days when they came out of Egypt, they weren't necessarily using cavalry yet, but they had chariots. And uh, those horse-drawn chariots would have conveyed a tremendous advantage on the battlefield to the point that it would be very hard to defeat an army that had them if you didn't have them. And, of course, later on, cavalry developed, and uh, they began to fight on horseback. I always wonder if this verse is in Deuteronomy also had the point of stay out of Egypt. Stay out of Egypt, yeah. Yeah, that's a big part of it because he, he emphasizes not going back down to Egypt to get any. And... Um, same thing with wives. They weren't supposed to go to those heathen nations to get wives or anything like that because you, you get yourself reinvolved with all this idolatry is the problem. And so they, they didn't they didn't have horses. Uh, David, as far as we have any reference in the Bible, never had horses. He had some mules. And I've talked about I've talked about that before, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, where there's a mule, there's been a horse. And so when you when you uh, when you have a mule, you may not be multiplying horses to yourself, but you're dealing with somebody who is, right? And you're depending on that capability for military power. And so you're depending on something that's not from God. That's what the image meant. Like I said, it's not a sin to have a horse now, so don't misunderstand. But it was a problem for them. And you can understand why. I mean, uh, if if the enemy has uh, all, a lot of mounted men on war chargers and you and your men are riding mules or donkeys. But it takes a lot of faith, right? You've, got to, you've really got to be depending on God to fight that battle. Oh, wow. Well, how's this charging right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, how demeaning would it be and for the king for the king to be, okay, you're all lined up, yeah. and that the Israeli cavalry is on donkeys, <laughs> right. and over here is the other army, yeah. and they're on these big well, war horses. Yeah. What did Christ ride into Jerusalem on? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and part of the backdrop of this is, this whole book, really, at its heart, is about the covenant that God had with Israel. Part of that covenant was is if they were obedient to Him, He would fight their battles for them. They didn't. They didn't need an army, really. Or if they had one, God would just make their enemies fall before them. And He did that, didn't He? When they when they come into the land, when they first conquer the Promised Land under Joshua, it didn't really matter what kind of army they had or what kind of army the enemy had, because their enemies just fell before them. And they, that was they didn't change that's right. Yeah, they didn't they didn't need that. And and probably during the time of kings, the the greatest representation of that is Hezekiah, who just went down to the temple and prayed. And God killed one hundred eighty five thousand men outside the city of Jerusalem that night. Well, 
that's what he wants the people to confess, that their salvation is in God and not in horses. And then he says this further in Hosea 14, 3, Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless find mercy. We talked before about how foolish it was to worship things that you had made instead of worshiping the one who made you. And so they got to confess that they won't say that to their gods anymore. Uh, and uh, the interesting, the reason given here is interesting. It's, For in thee the fatherless find mercy. And that's a very touching intended picture, isn't it? Because we're comparing here God now with Asher. What did the Assyrians do? It just said up there, they they dashed the infants in pieces and ripped up the women with child. What does God do? He sees an orphan and he's moved and he says, I'll give that one mercy. Very different character from what the Assyrians had. Thank God we've got a God who thinks like that. Thank God that he is that way. Verse four, this is his promise to them. And we're heading right now to the conclusion of the book here. This is what he'll do for them. I will heal their backslide. I will love them freely. That is not because I have to. I'm under no obligation. I will do it because I choose to. For my anger is turned away from him. Why is the anger turned away? The anger is turned away, though it's not said explicitly here. We've got the New Testament and we know why. The anger is turned away because it was all poured out on Christ at Calvary. And he finished it. I will be as the dew unto Israel. Now, if you don't know how precious that is, it's because you don't live in a desert land. <laughs> but they lived in a place where sometimes moisture was hard to come by. And the dew is precious in that. There's uh, one of the Psalms talks about, uh, let me read it here, verse uh, Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. He says dew is one of the great blessings they had because sometimes they depended on dew more than on rain for water. There wasn't that much rain there. And when it talks about Hermon, that's Mount Hermon. It was a tall mountain where a lot of dew would come down. And if, you lived in a place where there wasn't much rainfall, the dew would be a very precious thing, wouldn't it? Especially if you didn't always have much dew, which you don't in places like that. He says he'll be as the dew to them. He'll give them moisture. He'll refresh them. He shall grow as the lily. Cast forth his roots as Lebanon. Now, what was Lebanon famous for growing? Cedar trees. Those great, mighty cedar trees of Lebanon. Well, it turns out they had roots. <laughs> and that's what he says there. He's going to put them back in the land and he's going to let them put down roots this time that they won't be uprooted ever again. And when God returns Israel to their land, they're returned permanently the next time. Nobody will ever uproot them. They've been uprooted so many times over the years and dragged around all over the world. It says his branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. He'll prosper. He'll spread out, have a smell as Lebanon. I think we all know what cedar smells like, right? It's a beautiful smell. He says, his beauty shall be as the olive tree. That's a very interesting verse right there. Have you ever seen a picture of an olive tree? There's nothing pretty about them. They are not beautiful no. <laughs> to the eye. They're scraggly little bush-looking things. They're 
often asymmetrical. They're gnarly. Leaves turned all over the place. A big bonsai tree. All the beauty of the olive tree is in its fruit. Does it have an unusual smell? The tree? I don't know if the tree has an unusual smell or not. They have some trees out west that they refer to as like an olive tree. But the smell is, it's heavy perfume oh, yeah. type thing. It might be. I don't know. But uh, the beauty of the olive tree is, is all in the, the fruit it grows because they depended so heavily on that olive oil for so many things. I mean, we know that it was used in the temple, right? Without the olive oil, the candlesticks, the flame goes out. There's no light. Without the olive oil, you can't anoint a priest. You can't anoint a king. You can't function. You can't make offerings. But beyond that, even in daily life, they depend on a great deal for cooking. They, they use it for medicines. It was, it was, and olive oil is, uh, has a lot of health benefits, and olives have a lot of health benefits. And that's what the beauty is. Now, that's what he says about these people. It's not going to be that they look great. It's that they're going to finally start bearing the fruit that they were supposed to bear be the blessing to the world. And here I want to turn over to that passage I referenced a little bit ago in the book of Romans, chapter 11. And verse 1, it says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Wot ye not that what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel. So, he says that God has not cast away his people forever. That's important to what we're talking about in Hosea. Isn't it? They're going into captivity, but they're not cast away forever. And they're going to have the beauty of this olive tree. Now, understand, they are the original olive tree. And verse 17 here is talking about us as Gentiles. And if some of the branches be broken off, that is of Israel, and thou being a wild olive tree, that's us, the Gentiles, were grafted in among them. And with them partake us of the root and fatness of the tree, boast not against the branches. That is, we ought not ever mock Israel uh, because it is such a matter of grace that we have been put into the tree at all. Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee, right? We have as our foundation all these promises and scriptures that were given to Israel that we still have need of today. But what he goes on to talk about in uh, Verse 24 is this, For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert graft contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be graft into their own olive tree? And that's what he's talking about with Israel, is even though they've been taken out of the tree for the moment, he's going to graft them back into the tree. They're going to be redeemed, this remnant. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Part of Israel is blind. A part of Israel, of course, can see. There are many Jews who have been born again, believed on Christ. But they have this blindness that has happened to them in part till the fullness of the Gentiles become in. But after that's happened, and when Christ comes back, there are many of the Jews who will be grafted back into the olive tree. And so we'll fulfill this prophecy in Hosea where They'll have the beauty of the olive tree and they'll bear the fruit that they were always supposed to bear. It says in verse seven, they that 
dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn. Yeah, I'm sure most everybody here has raised corn. You know how it can start to wilt when you have a dry spell. You get a little rain and it starts to perk back up, right? And grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. Now, here we have God describing himself. We've been talking about Israel as a lily and as a cedar tree and as an olive tree. But God says, I'm like a green fir tree. And what a beautiful picture that is. Because what's distinctive about this fir tree? It's always green. Evergreen. It's evergreen. He said, and he makes a point to say, I'm like a green fir tree. Even though Israel went through these spells where they rebelled against God and God will finally have to redeem them, God himself never changed. He always stood the same as ever, always ready for them to return. He says, from me is thy fruit found. Well, we think of what Jesus said, don't we? I am the vine, ye are the branches. And all the fruit we've ever had is from him working through us. That's the source of our fruit. He says, who is wise and he shall understand these things, prudent and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. And that's the conclusion of the whole book. This is the postscript. We've come through the whole thing now. We've seen what Gomer did and how Hosea loved her. We've seen what Israel did and how God loved her. And with the addition of the New Testament, we can see what we've been and how God loved us in Jesus Christ. And the question is, who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them. You know, there are a lot of people in this world for whom this book of Hosea would have very little meaning. Because they don't catch the real message of it. And maybe to some people it's just... Uh, bit of uh, ancient literature that's been preserved down through the years, something interesting to study about how people in the Middle East thought once upon a time or how they conceived of God or something like that. But to the one who knows God, it's such a precious thing. To the wise and to the prudent, not in the world's eyes, because the world thinks it's all foolishness anyway, don't they? The world has always thought the preaching of the cross is foolishness. But to those who understand and know the love of God, it's a precious thing to see all these pictures of grace because what we find here is the same theme we have throughout the whole word of God, that man has no worthiness in himself, does not deserve anything from God, and yet he loves us anyway and is willing to send his son to die for us, to redeem us. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in. That's could have waited to sum up the entirety of life is anything I can think of, isn't it? How people criticize the Lord today. And they criticize his word. They say it's not right. They say they've got a better way. God says, my ways are right. If you'll be just, you'll walk in them. The transgressors shall fall there. And, and, and in the end, that's exactly what shall happen in this world. Those who will walk in the ways of the Lord will walk in them. Those who will transgress will fall in them. That's his final pronouncement. He's done everything that is necessary to redeem us from the grave, to redeem us from our sin, if we'll have it. That's the great question, isn't it? Will you have it? The wise and the prudent can see this, and we learn to put our trust in him. But those who will not have it will in the end fall. What if Gomer 
after Hosea had paid that ransom price, had said, no, I won't go home with you. She would have had nowhere else to go. No more home, nothing left for her. In the end, having had the pleasure of sin for a season, she would have been left out in the cold, out in the dark, with nothing left but death. And God help us. That's what a lot of foolish people in this world are doing today, aren't they? They have the pleasure of sin for a season. But when the conclusion comes, you'll find that the only thing that anybody ever had any hope in at all was Jesus Christ who paid the ransom for it. Well, we'll stop there for tonight. That's the end of the book of Hosea. Lord willing, next time we'll come back and start in Joel. He's a prophet who prophesies to the southern kingdom and actually was a little bit earlier than uh, Hosea. He was uh, around the same time as Elisha, actually, a lot less famous but around the same time period. So we'll start to look at that next time.